Hello and welcome to episode 1773 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We are going to be joined shortly by one of our Patreon supporters who will be answering some emails with us and also telling us a little bit about his life and his interest in baseball. But a brief bit of banter before we get to our guest, John Cho. So there was one notable signing that we should probably address. Justin Verlander is back with the Astros on a somewhat surprising deal. At least it was somewhat surprising to me, not that he returned to the Astros, but the terms of the agreement. So this is a one-year, $25 million deal with a player option for a second year at the same value. So it's essentially a $50 million commitment over two years, and he can take or leave the second one if he wants. And Verlander, of course, is coming off missing the entire 2021 season and all but one start of the 2020 season after Tommy John surgery. So it's an interesting case because the last time we all saw Verlander, he was winning a Cy Young Award in 2019 and then having a start where he looked like his usual self at the beginning of the 2020 season. And then he had Tommy John surgery and he's been gone since then, at least from public view. And he'll be 39 on opening day. So it's an odd case of a pitcher who essentially the last time he pitched was one of the very best pitchers in baseball and of course has been over the course of his career, but also has not pitched in a professional game for quite some time and has reached a very advanced baseball age. So it's an interesting case, I suppose, to figure out how much that guy should get or how long you want him or what kind of contract even he would be seeking. Yeah, I mean, I think that the contract he got suggests that his services were in demand and beyond just the Astros, right? Like, in addition to the $25 million to see what his what he looks like beyond whatever insight Houston had into his rehab and and sort of progress that way. One would imagine that they would have better insight than most. Um, and we know he threw in front of teams, but right. if he's getting $25 million plus a $25 million player option year, you have to think that like he was pretty well in demand and that Houston yeah. felt the differentiator was that player option because if he's great, if he's Verlander, he doesn't necessarily, you know, not exercise that option. Like, I guess he could say, I was great, but I'm still the age I am. And even um, without the the Tommy John part, I have to, you know, grapple with the realities of being in my late 30s. <laughs> and so maybe he thinks the $25 million is the best he can do. And he goes back to Houston for year two and everybody's happy because they get you know, good innings and he gets to make $25 million, but they are carrying the risk that he just becomes a, a pumpkin. Mm-hmm. And then it could he's, happen. It could happen. And then if that happens, he's definitely going to exercise his player option and make $25 million to be a diminished pumpkin. That's what we think of when we think of Justin Verlander. Tiny yes. pumpkins. We hope that um, doesn't happen. And even if it does, uh, he's a Hall of Famer already if he oh, yeah. throws another pitch. But yeah. they are obviously banking on him throwing quite a few more pitches. Right. <laughs> so, And uh, as far as we know, I mean, yeah, I assume he's looking good. Yeah. We haven't seen him, but no. teams have. And right. they must have liked what they saw. Right. I don't think that he gets this contract if 
you know, they walk away from that workout and think, oh, he's, he's cooked. Like he, he won't be back. He has a history of doing this, right. Of recovering. Mm -hmm. He's had down years and then we thought he was kind of done and then he was excellent again. So I think that, you know, when you think about players who might be able to overcome the combination of age and surgery, like he'd be on the top of that list for me, I guess we're going to find out, but assuming that he is able to give them some good innings, like I really like this move for them. Brendan Golowski wrote up the the deal for us at Fangraphs, and I think he made the good point that despite Houston having starting depth, like I think their World Series run showed that there is always the opportunity for more depth, and some of that depth has its own injury and usage concerns, right? And so if Verlander is healthy and he's able to really anchor that rotation, that gives them flexibility down the line. And, you know, maybe that means that they move one of those guys. I guess that possibility exists, but I think that it probably means that some guys, you know, are more flexible in their role and sometimes pitch in the bullpen and sometimes start and they have flexibility come October and it gives them some, you know, protection if Lance McCullough Jr.'s injury proves to be worse than we've heard it to be at this point or if he has another problem, you know, he hasn't been injury-free really at almost any point in his career. So I think that it's a good move for mm-hmm. for both sides. This seems like seems like a good deal. <laughs> Yeah, I remember going into 2020, there was some consternation about the Astros rotation because Garrett Cole had departed. And so they were really depending pretty heavily on Verlander and Granke, which seemed, you know, you're counting on old guys to keep pitching at their prior level. And then Verlander got hurt and Granke was not his peak self. He wasn't bad that year, but he kind of declined in 2021 to the point that they weren't eager to use him in the postseason and he sort of had to be pressed into service and now he's a free agent too so yeah can you count on McCullers and the Astros have developed this new crop of really strong starting pitchers Garcia and Valdez and Urquidy and Javier who's sort of a swing man and then they have Odorizzi who was signed sort of out of desperation too so they have guys but None of those guys is Justin Verlander. Now, I don't know whether Justin Verlander is Justin Verlander at this point, but evidently teams thought that he still has the potential to be, and hopefully he does. And he has said in the past somewhat famously that he wanted to pitch until he's 45, right? So for him, I mean, 39 is is nothing. (laughs) He said that prior to the Tommy John surgery, so I don't know whether that's changed his mind, but he probably wouldn't have gone through with the Tommy John surgery if he didn't want to keep pitching for years and think he could keep pitching at a high level because at that point some other pitchers might have just said oh this won't really affect my quality of life outside of baseball so I'll just hang him up here but no he went through the whole surgery and the grueling rehab process and obviously he's someone who works really hard and keeps himself in shape and so I would not be surprised to see him still be effective and the Astros could use him I think it's been a bit overblown the idea that this is like the end of an era for the Astros. I think that's mainly a perception created by the presumed departure of Carlos Correa, which I still think they could and and perhaps should make every effort to resign him. It doesn't seem as if they're going to, but 
most of the rest of the roster is returning. So between Correa and Brent Strom, somewhat surprisingly departing for the Diamondbacks, I mean, those are potentially big losses, but they're still the core of a team that has made it to the ALCS for five straight years here. And if they are able to get a a somewhat effective Verlander back, then that would be a big boost. And one thing I'm kind of curious about is that like Verlander has always thrown a lot of innings by the standards of his era. Like even in 2019, he led the majors with 223 innings, which like even two short years later seems like, whoa, 223 innings back in the day. Pitchers used to throw that many innings doesn't happen anymore. And I wonder like what would happen if he didn't do that? (laughs) What would happen if he just dialed it back a bit so that he went more for per inning efficiency and effectiveness rather than bulk. I mean, he has done both in the past, but maybe coming off surgery and at his age, he just says, hey, I'm not going to be the guy who goes seven every time. Maybe I can give you five great innings every time, which is basically what teams want from starters these days. And he's someone who historically has always held something in reserve, right? Like he's well known for conserving some speed and then dialing up the fastball in the late innings. And he's been very effective doing that. But what if he didn't have to save something for the late innings? What if he just went all out max effort for the first few innings? And he's someone who has like basically no second time through the order effect in his career like there's basically no drop off from first time through the order to second time through the order and I think even third time through the order he's worse but maybe not really dramatically worse and so I I wonder if he just had a different mindset and said like I'm just gonna give you five or six really great innings instead of planning to go seven or eight maybe that helps him compensate for any other lack of skill or, or durability so curious to see how that goes Yeah, and you would imagine that if ever there were a front office group that could help him kind of navigate through that, it might Mm -hmm. be Houston's, and he'd perhaps be more willing to entertain something like that with a team that he already has a good rapport and an established relationship with and, you know, gives them the opportunity to sort of ratchet down some of the other guys' innings should they need to. It just seems seems like a good fit. Yeah, just not a lot of precedent for a pitcher his age having Tommy John surgery. And so it's hard to say, like, one would expect that the outcomes would probably not improve with age, but they're just, it's not quite uncharted territory, but it's close, as Brendan mentioned in his piece, sixth oldest pitcher and second oldest starter to undergo Tommy John. So hard to extrapolate from that, really not a great track record, but a small sample as well. All right. So one other little bit of news that we wanted to relay good news it seems is that some of the details most of the details of the minor league housing agreement have been released first reported by baseball america and then subsequently i received a press release about this from mlb but i think everyone looked at it as a positive step when we learned not too long ago that teams would agree to provide housing to at the time we didn't know exactly who but it sounded like most minor leaguers but there was still a lot of uncertainty about okay who is going to be covered and how is this going to be implemented and what will the loopholes be and based on what we've heard on thursday it seems like and you always kind of have to take it with a grain of salt just given how this has worked or not worked historically but it's certainly sounds as if this will be a big improvement and it's kind of the system that people were hoping would happen. Yeah. 
It's so nice to have good news. <laughs> there seemed like there were so many ways that this could kind of go sideways. And, you know, there's still aspects of it that we don't have detail on. You know, one of the options that exists in this proposal is that if there isn't otherwise adequate housing, the teams can put players into hotels and the, the details of that part of it have to be fleshed out. So we still have a little more to learn, I imagine, in the coming weeks and months about what exactly this looks like. But they seem to be hitting on the parts that are the most important, getting guys out of leases, out from under having to you know, sign potentially multiple leases in the course of a year and be on the hook for that and the, the economic and psychological impact that that can have. They seem to have recognized the basics here, which is that you know, the individuals involved might change over the course of a season because guys are going to be promoted or demoted or moved around or what have you. But like, they're going to have the same number of guys at every team over the course of the year. That's going to remain constant. And so rather than burden players with the logistics of having to find housing and sign a new lease and move and all of that, this seems to create a much less financially burdensome system and psychologically burdensome system. They're not going to be on the hook for, you know, basic utilities, the standards of what the accommodations have to look like in terms of how many players to a bedroom and the kind of communal space that they have and, you know, what actual furniture they're going to have in their right. apartments and the, the sorts of things that, you know, make a place livable beyond it just being, you know, something that shelters you from the elements seem to be accounted for here in a way that's really positive. So mm -hmm. I don't think that this changes the, the conversation around minor leaguers still needing to be paid a living wage, right? We don't want this to be a substitute for that. But I think that when we talked about this, we also acknowledge that this is an important supplement to that question. You know, depending on the market that they're in, housing might end up being a really burdensome cost, even if they are paid non-poverty wages. So mm -hmm. I think that this is a really important step and long overdue, but it's good that it's here. You know, we'll continue to, I'm sure, monitor the quality of that housing once there are actually people in apartments rather than just um, hypotheticals. But I think this is good news. Ben, mm -hmm. this yeah. is good news. <laughs> sure seems like it. Yeah. Uh, what luxuries? A single bed per player, no more than two players per bedroom. Wow. I mean, they'll just be living in the lap of luxury. But hopefully we won't see any more photos of like these just hellscapes of, yeah. of apartments where, you know, seven minor leaguers are all crashing at the same time on air mattresses or something. I mean, there have been so many horror stories that yeah. we have heard and discussed on the podcast podcast before and so minor league baseball player not now and and perhaps not ever the most remunerative career choice no. that that one could make but this certainly helps and there's just so much evidence out there about the effects of housing uncertainty on people in any profession or walk yeah. of life and how it can affect your mental and physical well-being and your sleep and obviously from a player development perspective let alone a, a humane perspective there would certainly be obvious effects there and researchers have documented those effects and it just makes so much more sense like for teams to handle this i mean besides the fact that they can afford it also just from like a logistics angle teams know like okay 
we have this many players right. from this period to this period, whereas players don't know where they're going to be or how long they're going to be there. They're coming and going. If they have to worry about breaking leases and signing leases, it's just another enormous headache on top of everything else that they have to do. So it sounds like this will be a, a big weight off of many players' minds and that they will all be eligible. They can opt out if they want, but other than players on major league contracts who are in the minors just uh, on rehab assignments, I suppose, or, or get demoted maybe, or players who are making six figures, you know, the, the players who are most able to afford housing, everyone else will be covered. And we'll see, I guess, long term whether teams will be more inclined to develop dorms and, and kind yeah. of have standardized housing as opposed to having to find places for players to live or hotel rooms or host families, which is still a possibility in some cases. So this is sort of a transitional time, but wherever it ends up, however the transition goes, it's got to be better than it was before. And I was looking at the press release and unsurprisingly, it's a press release, so you would expect it to sound like this, but it makes it sound like, oh, the magnanimous owners just out of the kindness of their hearts have agreed to provide free housing to players. It says, owners unanimously agreed to provide housing to players in 2022 as next phase of improvements. Move comes after increasing salaries, improving facilities, and reducing travel in first season under new system. I guess that's all technically true. What it doesn't mention is that the move also comes after like repeated and increased exposés and pleas for assistance and documented cases of players just not having adequate housing. I mean, owners have had decades to do this if they wanted to. So it's not like they just of their own volition said, hey, we want to be nice guys and give our players places to live. Like, I think they have gotten sick of the bad publicity or have gotten worried about players organizing or trying to advocate for themselves or unionize or or whatever it may be. I mean, (laughs) that seems to be the primary impetus here. So, of of course, uh, owners are going to say that they've made big improvements and they're only going to do more. And there is some truth to that, I suppose, but they've basically been dragged kicking and screaming to this point. (laughs) Yeah, we don't need to give them too much credit here. You know, this is the result of years of writing and advocacy, both on the part of minor leaguers themselves and organizations that have, you know, brought attention to their plight. So yeah, this is, this is long overdue. We're glad it's here, but Mm -hmm. we don't need to give them too many pats on the back (laughs) for arriving at what has been a very obvious conclusion for a really long time. So All right, so we'll save some more news for next time. There are some Wander Franco extension rumors we're reading as we record this, and we have maybe some thoughts on awards voting as we record here on Thursday afternoon. We're still waiting for the full MVP results to be announced. Ben doesn't know if he needs to riot yet. (laughs) Yes, uh, if you're listening to this, then you have heard, but we have not heard as we speak. So we'll save that and other news reactions for next time as a lead-in to our first Stove League discussion. And as a reminder, we'll be talking about the first four episodes of Stove League next time after that opening banter. So get on that if you haven't yet. And just a PSA for anyone who is still watching or hasn't started yet, 
I have found the subtitles on Vicky to be the best that I have seen. I have sampled the ones on Cocoa and Vicky, the two Korean streaming services that I've been linking to on the show pages. At least early on, the Vicky ones, in my opinion, are far superior and more natural and mm-hmm. detailed. So I would recommend checking those out. I've heard from others that the Cocoa subtitles improve as the series goes on, and some people have been enjoying it that way. So whatever works, but all else being equal, I would recommend watching on Vicky. But I hope you're all enjoying it. And now, let us get to our guest. We are joined now by Effectively Wild listener and Patreon supporter John Cho, not the star of Cowboy Bebop, but absolutely the star (laughs) of this podcast episode. John, hello. Hello. Thanks thanks for having me on. Very happy to have you. And whenever we have a listener on as a Patreon perk, which is fun for us and hopefully fun for you, I always ask how you came across our humble show and what could have possibly possessed you to support us at the highest tier as you do. I wanted to donate to you as, quite frankly, a thank you. Uh, over COVID, I've been doing a lot of walks and runs and uh, You've kept me company during <laughs> during these last few months. Uh, yeah, I wanted to donate as a thank you. My 12-year-old daughter is crazy about baseball, and listening to Effectively Wild together has been a great shared experience for us. All she wants to do is learn about so many different parts of the game, and and one of the many things that she wants to do when she grows up is to run a, an MLB team's baseball operations division. So uh, hearing from voices like yours, Meg, and Ben, it helps her dream big. Um, she's actually reading the, the only rule is it has to work. She's reading ah, that right excellent. now. And so uh, so that's why I wanted to donate, really, as a, as a thank you. Ah, you are really indoctrinating her early <laughs> in the, the Bible of Ben Lindbergh. I love no, it. She's, she's, she jumped in fully, and uh, this is not me. This is uh, it's, it's a nice way, and it's a shared passion and not a— Yeah, yeah. that's great. You'll have to give me some <laughs> tips on indoctrinating a daughter in love of baseball in, in a few years. But uh, we want to ask you about that and a few other specific topics as well as answer some emails. But tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you are, what you do. Ah, okay. So I live in Jamaica Plain, which is a neighborhood within Boston. I live with my, my baseball-loving wife and three kids. Some quick uh, fun facts about me is uh, I played exactly one game of minor league baseball, mm-hmm. and my, my love of baseball cards and math and card games has led me to my career as a stock investor right now. Huh. And then my, my two t- oldest kids and I have also taught an intro baseball analytics seminar each of the past few years at our local public library. So I think our youth baseball league is probably uh, most... Maybe the most saber-friendly youth baseball organization around. And uh, and the last quick thing is um, my kids and I are, are ball hawks. We love going to MLB games early so that we can try to catch batting practice homers. And we have about 70 lifetime baseballs, and we give most of those uh, away to, to others in, in order to spread the joy. So So we like baseball a lot. How do you position yourself optimally for those? I know that folks have gotten it kind of down to a science about where they can be best placed to collect the most number of balls. It's it's <laughs> it's amazing how many spray charts you can pull up online, and you can see um, where the batters uh, where the batters usually hit, who's throwing. Is it is it a, a lefty that's going to start that day? So the the bullpen the the batting practice pitch is usually a lefty. And then it's uh, it's kind of kind of gambling. Do you try to take a spot where no one is? And I never understood fishing before, right? You, I, to me, fishing sounds like you sit around all day and you get a bite every once in a while. And I realized, oh my goodness, like what we do trying to catch these balls, it's like fishing. And it is a ton of fun to uh, to catch a ball in the air. You get butterflies and it's it's a goofy, fun thing. And 
even last year during the pandemic, we went, um, our neighborhood kids and I and my kids went to uh, Lansdowne Street right beyond the Green Monster. And um, there, there we, we'd have a catch on the parking garage. And every once in a while, we balls would come over and land on the garage. And uh, yeah, we, we make do. We try to plan as best as we can. And, and regardless of what happens, we laugh and have fun. So you mentioned your cameo in a minor league game, in an indie league game, and I know that that has led to your creation of a society for fellow players who have played in exactly one minor league game. So tell us how that came about, because that is a scenario that we have discussed on the podcast previously, and Sam Miller has written about, you know, would you, if you had the opportunity, even want to play in a professional baseball (laughs) game, given the risk of embarrassing yourself and, and making a mockery of everything and i think opinions are split on whether people would actually want to do that because it's fulfilling your dream and it sounds so cool or the risk of just looking really bad at baseball which i as i understand it you didn't do but (laughs) let us know how that happened yeah so how i got to actually play a game was like i'm sure everyone listening on this podcast you know baseball has been a lifelong love of mine and after the birth of my second child i um i realized you know what uh, my life is going to be different, right? I'll be really, my responsibilities changed. And you don't I wanna, say. I want to <laughs> I I try something for myself, do something for myself. And I kind of think about this as like a midlife crisis project where I, I, I wanted one at bat to see how I do. Yeah. It seems like one of the less destructive midlife crises <laughs> you could have probably. I think it's cheaper than, uh, you know, buying a convertible or, yes. or something. <laughs> And so um, the normal corn belters uh, in the Frontier League in 2011, they auctioned off a one-day contract in an exhibition game. And um, it was a win-win. The the organization created uh, excitement for their fans and the money benefited the Humane Society of Central Illinois. And and um, I was fortunate to win the, uh, the auction and uh, I got a contract for one day. Mm-hmm. And my manager that day was Hal and yeah. um, I got to play one inning in the field, in right field, of course, <laughs> and I had one at bat. <laughs> and how did it go? They, uh, the at bat was interesting because um, I won the auction on a Tuesday and the game was on a Friday. And in Boston, it rained all week. <laughs> so I didn't even have a chance to really oh, get, wow. get warm and uh, to practice. And and you hadn't been playing. At, have you played at a high level at all previously? Yeah, or Yeah, I did. But at that, you know, at that point, I was 34 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, so at that point, uh, I wasn't playing regularly, and uh, uh, so I didn't have a chance to practice because it was pretty a uh, qu- quick turnaround to go out to normal normal Illinois. And even the day of the game, batting practice got rained out, so I was a hundred percent cold. <laughs> and, <laughs> Gosh. So, yeah. I, and I was kidding with my wife before the game. I was like, "Man, maybe I should take the first pitch, right?" And and she's like, "No, you're crazy. You might only get three pitches." So we go swinging. <laughs> so, so the the reporter a reporter after the game had commented that that I patiently took the first pitch, but the funny part about that was I had decided to swing regardless, mm-hmm. and the speed of the game was so fast. The fastball was just I, I was actually going to swing, but um, I couldn't because I was so late. And <laughs> the second pitch, I decided to cheat and swing early and do everything I could, you know, choke up and. And um, I hit the ball as late as I possibly could. So it really went to the right. I'm a right-handed batter. And then I'm sitting there 0-2 and I'm like, oh, no, what do I do at this point, right? It, uh, will I get a curveball? Will I a changeup? And so I was guessing and I was like, okay, fastball. I already proved I can't hit it. So he's going to throw it again. And this time I fouled it up over the, the first base dugout. And there was a little buzz in the crowd, a cheer. And, 
And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I, on this third pitch, I cheated so much and I'm still late. And I'm like, how early do I have to swing? And so fourth pitch, I'm like, oh, if, if it's off speed, I'm going to be off by a ton. Swing early. And I uh, threw me another fastball. The ball hit the bat and went down the first baseline. The first baseman dove, knocked it down, threw it to the pitcher who covered the bag. And I was probably out by 30 feet. <laughs> it was so, it was wet turf. And the ball, the, the, the speed of the ball did all the work. I like um, how you described it as the ball hit the bat, not the bat hit the ball. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then it was super exciting. And, but I had no time to rest because the, the manager, the manager of the team that year was Hal Lanier, you know, from, from the, mid 80s uh houston astros right he's like hey chill you're going to right field and uh as you can imagine the ball found me twice sure uh (laughs) once the ball went in between me and the center fielder went to the fence so of course i let the center fielder throw it in but uh, the second one was um there was a runner on second and i'm playing right i'm like if there's a single here there's gonna be a play at the plate right and so i uh i was like okay fundamentals you know pick up the ball don't let it get by you Throw it as hard as you can, throw it on the line, hit the cutoff guy. There might be a play at the plate. So I did everything. I got all my energy behind the throw. I hit the cutoff guy on two bounces. Now, on one side, it looked legit because a lot of people throw balls on wet turf and they let it skip. But in truth, I tried to throw it in the air to the cutoff person. <laughs> so, so the runner, runner was safe, but uh, it looked like I did my job by not letting it hit the wall. And... <laughs> It went to the cutoff guy and no one said anything afterwards. So I think I did okay. What was the reaction of the folks you were playing with? I can imagine, you know, I can imagine that if you're trying to make your way in independent ball and then um, someone comes in on a promotion that that might inspire a variety of reactions. But what was the, what was the team atmosphere like for you? Yeah, I, I wanted to be really sensitive about that because, you know, this is their, this is their, their career. And so I didn't say anything in the, in the locker room much, right? And um, some people thought that I was just another person coming through in spring training. And a lot of people came up to me and they talked about my career and what I did because in independent ball, you're even further, you're not, it's not affiliated baseball. So it's even one step further away from the majors. So it was obvious that everyone appreciated being there and was aware of their baseball mortality. And thankfully, my teammates were super gracious that day. They, they talked about the experience. They gave tips, uh, suggestions on uh, how to wear the uniform, how to clean your cleats properly. They were, they were great. They were really fantastic. And um, they understood how, how special this was for someone who loves baseball. And yeah, once again, they asked a lot about, hey, how did you get into investments? How did you, <laughs> how did you decide to, to do this? And because uh, I'm sure a lot of them are thinking about what's next. Yeah. So, uh, so they were great. Sounds like the opposing pitcher didn't take it easy on you either. (laughs) So (laughs) I guess it wasn't a name brand pitcher that people would know necessarily, but still that's intimidating stuff. Yeah. I'm just glad he didn't throw me a curveball. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I Unfortunately, your, your appearances uh, has not gotten you a baseball reference page. I, I guess we were talking before we started recording, maybe because it was a spring training game or, or because it was ultimately rained out, possibly. And that's something that Sam and I, when we were working with the Stompers in the book that your daughter is reading, we debated, do we want to insert ourselves into a game just for the glory and for the story to get a baseball reference page? And ultimately, we decided not to, I guess, part 
partly out of fear and partly <laughs> because we felt like we might be overstepping our bounds somehow or would be abusing our privilege there. But I still think about that and, and wonder whether we should have done it just to say that we did. So it's pretty cool that you have gotten that opportunity. And I know that you are actively looking for others who have. So you asked us a little while ago if we could come up with a list of players who have appeared in only one minor league game. And Kenny Jacklin of Baseball Reference was nice enough to oblige and send us a, a giant spreadsheet, which we passed along to you and maybe can link on the show page for people who are interested. And that will hopefully further your efforts with the Moonlight Graham Society. So tell us about that. Yeah. So over over the years, I've met two other people that have become good friends now that um, have similar experiences. Um, one friend uh, played in the Prairie League in the mid-90s, and he played one game, uh, did not get the bat. And then another friend um, was a 61-year-old rookie in the Pecos League three years ago, and he's a sidearm pitcher, and he finally had a chance to play. And we met, uh, we watched the minor league baseball game together, and while we're there, we're talking, we enjoyed talking about our our, our short minor league careers and enjoy talking to each other about the creative pursuit of our, our, our dreams. And we, uh, we, we decided to call ourselves the Moonlight Graham Society. And we decided, uh, you know, these, it's nice to document these things. And um, storytelling is really powerful. And we thought a lot of these individual unique stories probably, you know, won't be documented. And we'd love to do that. So we started a website, moonlightgramsociety.com. And you were, you and Kenny were gracious to send us that list. And we want to use that to reach out to people and just to talk to them and say, we'd love to hear your story. And we'll, we, we want to want to meet more people like us. And we actually have a meeting set up this weekend to talk to someone uh, who played one game for the Sonoma Stompers. Oh, cool. And so we'll, we'll see how, where this goes and where this takes us, but it's a fun little adventure and we hope to meet a lot of people. And if people know of people that have played one or very few minor league games, uh, we'd love to be connected and please reach out to us. We'd love to just sit and chat and hopefully one of these days watch a minor league baseball game together. Mm -hmm. What is your expectation in terms of the, the breakdown within the folks who you might reach out to of people who are in your position and sort of pursuing a dream without really an expectation that they're going to progress through into your affiliated ball versus those who maybe had a shot at playing pro ball and for whatever reason weren't able to advance past one game or a couple of games. Yeah, we'd love to find out. And and I think that's what might make this uh, project super fun is to to, to hear the full story. We just look, took that list and started clicking on some profiles and it's uh, a lot of them, it's, you know, one line and it's, you know, one game and that's it. And um, we noticed some of them are, there's this one gentleman, he's, I believe he's 69 years old. He played one game of double A ball for the Red Sox. And I was like, wow, how, you know, what happened? And then we see another player uh, played four years of college and then played one game of independent ball and that was it. And that's another story we'd love to see. You know, we could look at the numbers and try to infer, but I'm sure there's uh Great conversations to be had. So to answer your questions, I don't know. And uh, we'd like to we'd like to find out. Yeah. 
Well, we'll link to that website where people can find all that info on the show page. And just cribbing from your bio at MoonlightGramSociety.com, it seems like baseball has been a constant for you basically from the start. Watching baseball, you were a Phillies fan, you played baseball, you were very into baseball cards. Your first date with the woman who's now your wife was at Fenway Park. So it's been baseball all the way, which is wonderful. And I did want to ask you about how that led you to your current career because it sounds as if your infatuation with numbers in baseball translated to some expertise with stocks and investments, which didn't happen for me somehow. I just never really made the leap from baseball to business. But how did that begin for you? And and then how did you get the bug that led you to what you do as a day job? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I studied engineering uh, when I was an undergrad, and I worked in a couple, uh, uh, I worked in consulting, worked in engineering, and I thought, you know what, I enjoy what I do, but but I don't love it. And the thought is, okay, well, what do I enjoy? And the thought always came down to baseball and to, to games. And one thing that I always loved was, uh, you know, in the late 80s, trying to, uh, I love baseball cards, and I'm sure a lot of listeners, you know, also uh, love baseball cards too. And it, I was always wondering about like why why are people willing to pay so much for this Jerome Walton rookie card, right? And what's the reason behind this? And or if you read in the newspaper, or if someone might complain that uh, you know the local baseball team signed this baseball player, and everyone might say, uh, "Wow, that's too much." And my first question was, "Well, if that's too much, and these are uh, smart people with a lot of information making these decisions, then uh, then what is the right number if what they signed for is the wrong number?" And so I went to business school and, you know, I, it was a time to sit back and say, you know, what do I enjoy doing? What do I think I'm good at doing? What do I think I'll enjoy putting a lot of time into? And, and stocks was very, are very similar to baseball players. Cause I think baseball players, not so much are, are people, just people. What it is, is because you have them for a certain amount of time, it's really, it's an asset, right? You'll get a certain amount of performance at a certain dollar price. And is this a good, asset, like if you stripped out the names. And um, I think stocks are similar, right? If you have a average performing company, but you get them at a bargain price, that's a good investment. If um, if you have the best player in baseball, but you pay that player by far the most, then that might not be a good investment because there's probably more downside than up. And so that's why, that's, that's why I enjoyed stocks. That's how I got into it. It's because there are so many similarities to baseball. And so I do love looking at the baseball contracts and trying to understand what happened. That was always fun for me. You mentioned how your daughter has become a huge baseball fan and is reading Ben's book and listening to the pod. And I know that you mentioned to us offline that she also plays baseball and has had some good experiences with her team. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. What has baseball been like for her, especially growing up with two parents who sound like uh, they're quite committed to the cause? <laughs> yeah. So um, my daughter, Ginny, she plays on an all-girls baseball team called the Boston Slammers. Uh, she plays on another team too, but the Slammers, uh, they compete in tournaments run by Baseball for All, which is uh, just a fantastic organization. Baseball for All supports girls playing youth baseball and uh, young women who play on their high school and college baseball teams now. And some baseball fans might not know that the U.S. has a women's national team that competes in the Women's Baseball World Cup. And many of the, the women on the 38-player women's national team development program roster played with the Slammers or against them at these events run by Baseball for All. So I think Baseball for All and the Boston Slammers, their programs were celebrating and supporting. And, 
And um, actually, Major League Baseball also continually adds programs to support the skills development of, of women uh, ballplayers. They just um, had a program. They invited uh, many high school, young women, high school ballplayers down to Arlington, Texas to play in the Rangers stadium. Uh, and that just wrapped up. And so it's a lot of great opportunities. Girls baseball is growing. It's really great to support. And so it's it's been fun to share that as an entire family and to see my daughter enjoy the game as much as I did when I was her age. And can you tell us also about the seminars that you and Ginny have been giving the intros ah. to baseball <laughs> analytics? What's the audience for that? And, and uh, what have you found the best approach to persuasion to be? Yeah, so it's it's actually um, my oldest son, uh, my ah, oldest kid, uh-huh. Xavier, also did this too. So Xavier, Ginny, and I would talk to, uh, so we coached, in, I, I coached in our town league. It's called the Regan Youth League. And I'm the type of parent who tries to sneak in lessons a lot. So I use baseball to sneak in math lessons. And um, every year we'd invite the players that are between, you know, nine to 12. And we'd invite them to the library and we'd talk about things. One of the things we talk about is the, the run expectancy matrix to try to figure out how you could think about the game. And we'd also talk about how do you measure a pitcher? What's, what's, uh, how should you think about what's important, right? And it'd be down to, you know, think about your pitcher's job is to prevent run, base runners, right? You want to get outs, prevent runners and hey, don't walk. Cause if you walk, if you walk a batter, you know, the on-base percentage is a thousand. If you, in youth baseball, if they hit the ball, you know, the likelihood they get on base is what, 50, 50, right? And we talk about on-base percentage. We talk about slugging and we just try to have fun. Uh, just realize, you know, the, these kids are, are doing it because they enjoy baseball, they enjoy math. And I just wanted to answer their questions and let them be comfortable uh, learning about the numbers in the game. And and when they go to the ballpark and they look at the scoreboard, they kind of understand what's happening and what slugging is and, you know, why is Mookie Betts so outstanding? And so those are the types we go in. We do like age-appropriate math lessons. So it's been a hit. We have uh, parents that would join us. And I think the parents often would get as much out of our sessions and, as the kids did. Uh, so it's been fun. It's been a, a great time. Yeah, I was going to ask what the reception to that was. Are there any stats that stood out to you as being particularly accessible to kids as sort of an entry point? Well, it's funny because uh, for when you think about offense, a lot of it is on base percentage, right? And But in youth baseball, I don't want to stress walks. I want to stress swinging and development and having fun. So it's kind of a, an interesting balance. What's resonated is, you know, not giving up homers if you're a pitcher, not worrying about uh, if a ball's hit, don't worry about what what happens because uh, you can't control it. Uh, we talk about BABIP at, at the major league level, and you know it doesn't apply to youth baseball, but at least they could understand it. So uh, oftentimes we let the conversation go to where the kids want to bring it. We often talk about, for example, the baseball Pythagorean theorem, the run scored and runs against. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, um, hey, we're about 50 games into the season, right? Here's the team I think is going to fall apart. And I'd ask them, what, you know, who do you think this team got off to a hot start? Do you think they can continue it? And it's been fun checking in a couple months later to see how the teams we thought would fall apart, how they do. This year, we, we, we noted the Blue Jays and their actual record was much different at that point when we did the seminar was much different than, than their uh, projected win loss, according to runs scored and uh, runs allowed. So um, it's fun. And actually, the, the people, the, the players that have done this years, uh, years ago, we still talk every about maybe the 50 game mark of the season. And we say, hey, everyone, um, tell me your projections. Who do you think will do well the rest of the year? And it's fun. It's a fun way to, 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 uh, to stay connected to players that, uh, that have gone through the seminar. So it's fun. 
Right. Well, it's often difficult when we have our Patreon supporters on to actually get to emails because (laughs) our Patreon supporters make great guests and they have interesting things to talk about. But we did promise some emails and we want to do some emails. So let's get to a few here. Let's start with this question, which I really like. This made me think this is from Xander, who says, why do you think that we don't have more statistics that are directly equivalent between batters and pitchers? It seems to me that almost every statistic for a hitter could also be applied to a pitcher. For example, why is it not commonplace to know what Max Scherzer's WRC Plus allowed or even OPS allowed is? Instead of WHIP, why do we not talk about OBP allowed? This would also allow us to more directly compare hitters to pitchers. How much better is Jacob deGrom at preventing run creation than Mike Trout is at creating runs? Do you think that these types of statistics would be easier for most fans to understand in the long term or make things more confusing? So I have a few theories and potential explanations, but if either of you wants to kick things off with some ideas about why we don't do this more or whether we should do it more, you have the floor. John. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to see this more. I think this is a great idea. And to me, this makes sense. So I fully agree. I think the big key would be that it has to be communicated well. We already get a lot of, uh, I think, information that helps us see how a pitcher's doing. You know, whip, walks per nine, strikeouts per nine. But I always thought context was tough. Like, what's a good whip? And so I think breaking it down, for example, I think percentiles is really good. Like, this pitcher is at the 80th percentile for allowed on-base percentage. I thought that'd be really powerful. I'd, so I'd love to see that. Yeah, I think there are a few reasons why we don't see it more often. And some of them I think are, are valid and maybe some just have more to do with tradition and how these stats developed. But I think the first thing is that generally hitters have more control over the outcome of balls in play than pitchers do. So I think that typically if if you take average or OBP or slugging or whatever it is, something that is heavily dependent on BABIP, then it's more telling in many cases for a hitter than it is for a pitcher. You know, if a pitcher has a 360 BABIP allowed like Eduardo Rodriguez last year, then you say that's bad luck. If a hitter has a 360 BABIP allowed, well, it might still be a little lucky depending on the hitter, though that might actually be his skill because he hits the ball in a certain way consistently or he's very fast and he can beat out infield hits. So that, I think, is part of it that – With pitchers, there's just more defense and luck that comes into play with batted ball results. And so if you want to give a a picture of how the pitcher performed, then you can go straight to the factors directly under the pitcher's control or more directly, the FIP components, essentially, strikeouts and walks and that kind of thing. So that's, I think, one big reason. But I think there are more. I was just talking to Craig Goldstein and Zach Cram about this and they had some similar ideas about it. And I think part of it, and you just sort of touched on it, John, is that we have all these per nine stats for pitchers, strikeouts per nine, walks per nine. Historically, I think because pitchers pitch innings, you know, that's kind of the unit that we use for them. Whereas with pitchers, we use plate appearances or at bats. And for pitchers, I think we're all just used to having things on a per inning or per nine inning basis. And so this is a a little different. It's kind of a, a different framework than we use to evaluate 
hitters for the most part. And I think with pitchers, at least historically speaking, it was like, well, did you allow a run or not? Which is obviously very simplistic, but you can't really do that as well for a hitter. I mean, runs created is, is a sabermetric advanced stat, and you have RBI and runs scored, which maybe people will equate to run production, but of course it's not quite equivalent. So with pitchers, I think people, at least in the past, were less interested in, well, did you allow a lot of base runners? No, just tell me what was your ERA. Did you allow the run to score or not? If not, then I don't care how many runners were on base. Of course, we know that how many runners you allow on base will be predictive in the long run of how many runs you allowed. But I think that's a a big part of it too, is that we just boil things down to runs for pitchers or we look at things on a per nine innings basis. And so it's just kind of a, a different framework in which to examine player performance. I think one of the places we're starting to see that shift a little bit, and this is, I think, the result of this data just being available is when you look at folks who are writing more detailed pitch analysis for a given pitcher, right? So it's like in those instances, you know, it's not unusual for a writer at Fangraphs or Baseball Prospectus or wherever to look at sort of how an individual pitch has performed for a pitcher and use that as as an entry point to their analysis to help explain, you know, why they're doing well or why they're doing poorly or a place where maybe they could optimize their pitch mix more effectively and, and see better results. So I think that we are starting to see that stuff. And part of it is just, yeah, we needed the data to catch up to what we were able to dig into. And I think people are getting more comfortable with that now. And we're starting to see it more often. I don't really have a problem with like the, the frame of reference being specific to the the pitcher or the hitter, right? Like I think understanding a pitcher's performance based on strikeout percentage or, you know, FIP or DRA or what have you makes good sense. But I do think that there are times when trying to understand that performance requires digging in on individual pitches and we have an opportunity to be a bit more descriptive yeah. there, I think. Yeah. And that can get you into trouble sometimes. Oh, sure too, can. Cause yeah, because sometimes it's like to... 10 pitches and you're like, oh, right. that's not enough for us to say anything at all. <laughs> yeah, and often it only takes into account the outcome, like it's right. an at-bat ending pitch. And Correct. Well, what if it wasn't an at-bending, at-bat ending pitch, yes. but you get a lot of whiffs on it or something. So that can be dangerous. But yes, I, I think that is a case where you see this more often or maybe splits sometimes with mm-hmm. other types of splits. I don't know, runners in scoring position or something if you're doing TOPS plus like basically anything where you can't do ERA you know like the ad what's your ERA against righties or lefties or whatever it is and everyone makes fun of that if you can't do that then you do kind of have to look at it on a, a per plate appearance basis or maybe it's better to do that so I agree, though, John, that there are some times when it would be intuitive and maybe useful. And there are times when I will cite this. You know, I I definitely have cited at times that so-and-so had this you know, sometimes it's it's contact quality or it's like weighted on base or expected weighted on base allowed or something. But I'm pretty sure I've done, you know, OPS allowed as a stat for pitchers sometimes. Or, you know, sometimes you'll say that so-and-so allowed a certain slash line against all the hitters he faced. And then you'll equate that to like 
a hitter who produced that slash line. So you can say that so-and-so turned all hitters he faced into, you know, insert name of not very good hitter here. And that Evan be... White. <laughs> I have done that specifically. Yes. <laughs> so I think there are times when it does make some sense. And I think it, it can be a little misleading, though. It's It's like that apparent paradox of, well, why is strikeout percentage or strikeout rate so useful and predictive for pitchers, but not so useful or predictive for hitters, at least in some cases. So sometimes it seems like, well, it should just be a mirror image of each other, but it doesn't actually work that way. (laughs) But I think it is semi-surprising. Like sometimes it's hard even to just find these stats, like the the slash lines allowed, like on baseball reference on the player pages, I, I think they're relegated to like an advanced stat section, which they're not really advanced stats, but they're just not the the commonly cited ones. And on Fangraphs, correct me if I'm wrong, Meg, but I don't think they're even available like on on standard leaderboards or player pages. You can find them on the splits leaderboards, I think, but you can't just find like OPS allowed on Max Scherzer's player page. Yeah, you got to go into the splits tool. Yeah, which is, you know, not necessarily right or wrong, but is just a reflection of how these stats tend to be used or not used, I suppose. All right, let's take a question from Andrew, who says... I was watching a highlight from a cricket match. We always get into trouble when a question starts with someone watching cricket and asking how it applies to baseball. But Andrew says, they mentioned that when you make an out, you're out for good. This got me thinking about what baseball would be like if this rule were adopted. What happens when you run out of hitters? Would lineup construction change? Would this actually make the Angels a playoff team? Since Trout and Otani would take pretty much every late game at bat, could you imagine how upset a base runner thrown out at home would be at the third base coach? So first, let me just say, I'm not exactly Mr. Cricket Understander over here, but if I'm interpreting this question correctly, then the questioner is not interpreting cricket correctly. Because when a batter gets out in cricket, or is dismissed, as they say, which makes it seem like the batter has been disobedient somehow, they're not removed from the rest of the match. They just can't bat again in that innings. But if it's a type of cricket where there are multiple innings, then that batter can come back and bat again in the next one. Or if the team is due to take the field, then the batter who just got out can play defense. So when you make it out, you're not out for good. You're out for that innings, or at least that half of that innings. And this would all be 10 times easier to explain if the word for a single innings was not the same as the word for multiple innings. Like, call it an inning, or call them inningses or something. Throw us a bone here. But let's proceed as if this scenario were the way it worked. And that once you make it out, you're just eliminated. It's like the Stephen King book, The long walk. Once you stop walking, you're done. Assuming baseball worked that way. So the leadoff guy grounds out in the top of the first, and he's just done, and you have to swap in someone else. How different would baseball be, John? The first thought, it would finally make games shorter. I think this is the one way to do that. <laughs> right. You'd have to forfeit pretty quick. Yeah. Or or it would make me really sad. The one game I, I always try to go to every year is when the Angels come to Fenway. Yeah. And I'd be bummed out if uh, our starting pitcher, the Red Sox starting pitcher, you know, pulled a one, two, three inning and we lose <laughs> the players right. I want to see. Yeah. So what I think is interesting about cricket is that it seems to, I, so I'm not well versed in it, but my understanding is that um, it's never stopped us from talking. Yeah. About <laughs> it seems like the normal thing in cricket is that the batters score runs, right? And and an out is a big deal. 
So mm-hmm. it seems like the roles are kind of backwards. Where I think, uh, you know, baseball usually the it's a big deal when a batter does something, an extra base hit or so. So I'm not sure really a pl- how directly that would um, apply. And uh, I'd feel bad for the relief pitchers that would be worried about having to realize that they might have to come up and bat <laughs> in the games. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, but, you'd quickly get down to the dregs of the roster. And yeah, it's it's not quite like cricket where not that I'm qualified to talk about cricket either, but I don't think it Again, has the has same. never stopped. <laughs> doesn't have the same cyclical sort of structure. You know, one guy goes after the next and, and then that's it. You can't bat around in cricket, at least as I understand, batting around. You know what? I'm not going to go there. So I think if you were to do this, and I don't see really any upside, well, maybe one potential upside, but there just aren't a lot of upsides here because uh, generally we want the good players to stay in the game so that we get to see them play. (laughs) So this seems antithetical to that. You would have your starting lineup and the good players would generally last a little longer than the less good players, but they still wouldn't last nearly as long as they do now and no one wants that really but if for some reason you did have this rule then I guess you would see a a major change in pitcher usage right I mean if you had to stick with the 26-man roster that we have now your only choice really if you don't want to just run out of players or end up with your seventh reliever taking at bats in the middle of every game is that you'd have to have your starters go deep into games, right? right? And then you'd have to have a very deep bench of position players. So if you're someone who laments the loss of dedicated pinch hitters and some of the backup defensive replacements and pinch runners, you know, some of those bench roles that are endangered or extinct and now you only have a, a few bench guys and you have a backup catcher and then you have one or two players who play a, a whole bunch of positions and that's it because every other roster spot is occupied by a pitcher in this world you would pretty much have no choice but to just hand the pitcher the ball and say you're going to go deep into this game because we can't lose you because we need (laughs) to use all our roster spots on hitters who will replace the hitters that make outs and are removed from the game so I don't know what this would do to the overall level of offense because On the one hand, you would have starters staying in the whole game and you wouldn't have bullpen specialists and there'd be times through the order effects, but then there wouldn't be so many times through the order effects because the players in your starting lineup would be pulled and you'd very quickly be down to a caliber, a lower caliber of offensive performer. I mean, you would have to, you know, it would basically be like AAA players on the back half of your bench and in the late innings. So maybe those things would balance out to a certain extent. Does this change the calculus for how attractive it is to have two-way players to give you Mm. greater flexibility on your roster, knowing that you need guys who can be competent bench bats because, you know, you're going to just have some games where like Mike Trout makes an out and then you're just without him for a while, but you are going to need arms in relief at some point. So does it, do we think that it would change how attractive like a, a truly well-developed two-way player would be for teams i asked that not really having any conviction in the answer but again i never have any conviction in any of my cricket answers so things aren't that different my, my thought is you'd have to have a lot of catchers too because oh if, gosh oh yeah. yeah and well if major league baseball wants more stolen bases hey maybe this is another way maybe <laughs> that's true maybe yeah maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk about this too much so major league baseball doesn't <laughs> catch on I think this is a great idea. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, but you don't, you don't, you know, from Major League Baseball's perspective, if you're incentivizing, this is a terrible trade for them, right? Because you're getting starters who have to go deep and those are expensive. And you're getting hitters who in theory, you know, are a little less injury prone and that can be expensive too. So you'd have a bad game and you'd have some players who are more expensive than they were previously. So that seems like they'd say, no, thank you. Then again, you'd have like half of your roster would basically be scrubs. Yeah, I guess that's true. Or almost interchangeable. I mean, it would be like the players at the back of bullpens now yeah. get optioned over and over and shuffled back guys and forth. Rejoice. Right. And they make the league minimum. And so probably MLB might be on board for oh, that aspect no. of it. So yeah, let's move on before yeah. anyone gets any ideas We don't know what we're talking about. It's cricket. It's just cricket. <laughs> and it's not even really cricket. All right. Alistair says, and this might be another question from the hope we don't do this department i've been reading the book mine how the hidden rules of ownership control our lives and a large part of one of the early chapters discusses intellectual property and the difference between some things we deem worthy of protection and others we don't one of the reasons we might not provide copyright and patent protection is because the first mover advantage provides its own reward The example given is NFL coaches develop new tactics or plays every year because the first mover advantage can make you a successful football team. The innovators get the reward of the playoffs and possible job promotions for their work, and it's a big enough reward that they don't usually seek protections. I don't think it applies to baseball as nicely, but it got me thinking, what if it were allowed to protect your intellectual property? Offhand, I could think of maybe pitchers might protect a new pitch. Teams might protect certain shift formations, or maybe batters would even protect a stance. Is there anything else you think might fit the scenario? If things were protected, how do you think players would handle it? Like if you could sign a player and get his patents, (laughs) how much extra value would that be worth? How many players do you think would license their IP to other teams or players? This is a fantastic question. Yes. <laughs> I think it's a smart aleck in me. The first thought was that maybe a team would try to try to get a patent on banging on trash cans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you can patent something that's yeah. illegal. But <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite parts of sports, pro sports, well, actually all sports, is, um, is innovation. Mm-hmm. NBA in the 80s was the whole idea of twin towers or the in football, the run pass option and college football is a lot of innovation or even the split fingered fastball when they came out. I found right. that fascinating how mm-hmm. how that grew. But boy, this is really interesting. I, I think I would, you know, as a fan, I would try to f- figure out would this help or hurt the product? Mm-hmm. Uh, would I enjoy it? And I, it seems to me it would hurt it. Yeah. You know, even when you have new strategies, it's not every team follows it. And I, I think that variety is is great where... Some teams decide, you know, we're going to invest in starters. We're going to go more depth and not go top heavy with stars. And, you know, when it's nice to see different strategies play out and how on the field. So, but that the later points were really interesting because uh, if the IP protection goes to the team or the player, like my thought is like, yeah, would you keep a player? Would you not cut a player if he had this <laughs> asset, right? right? Or would you keep a player around just to use that? Or right. Could what happens? License it to yeah. his teammates. Hey, you're allowed to throw this pitch that I invented. <laughs> yeah, or or if the if the player uh, retires, right? What happens? Is it? Yeah, does it, does it, does it revert it, to the public domain at some point? <laughs> yeah, does it expire? So uh, right. Well, and does everything that we have now just exist as like everything now is Bach, right? It's all Mozart. <laughs> like this is just in yeah. the public domain. We have to start from today forward. And I don't know that like the development of pitches or strategies is so cleanly delineated, right? Like if you're a pitcher 
and you have a particular way that you like to grip the ball, well, that might that might be to your benefit, but maybe you work with someone in player dev and they, you know, they change the pronation of your wrists a little bit, or, you know, they suggest that your release point be slightly different. Is that your pitch? Is it theirs? Is it both of yours together? Like, this seems like we're just getting the entire sport bogged down in litigation for like <laughs> the next 50 years, which is everyone's very favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. I think about video games, as I often do, because in video games, you can't copyright game mechanics. There may be certain implementations of mechanics that you can copyright in certain cases, but generally, if someone invents like a genre of games or a way to play video games, you can't say, that's mine, and no one else can make that now, which is good, I think, because we don't have only one developer or publisher that is licensed to make platformers or shooters or fighting games or whatever it is. You can't say, I was the first person to do a double jump in a video game, and now no one else can do a double jump. And I think that's good. I guess you could say that maybe it suppresses innovation in some ways, but I think in video games, there's so much potential area for innovation. And it's good that if someone comes out with something, then someone else can, you know, copy it, I guess you could say, or learn from it or incorporate it or improve upon it. And then you get the benefits of competition, which can be good for consumers and different people get to put different spins on those things. So I think that also applies to baseball in that it's better to have it out there. I mean, what if the Rays, for instance, you know, not that the Rays invented the defensive overshift or or the four-man outfield. There's precedent for these things decades before. But if you were to start this at a certain point and now suddenly, I don't know, you could patent or or copyright seam-shifted wake or whatever the the latest innovation is, and then that just travels with that pitcher or with this team. I mean, it would reward you in that you have some incentive. Like in, in some ways, I guess it would promote variety because only one player or one team would be able to do that thing. And so you would have the team that shifts or the team that throws this type of pitch or something, and no one else would be able to do that. So you're building in a certain amount of variety, but I guess you're also restricting competition and making it easier for that team to dominate with that tactic. I mean, if only one team is allowed to throw a slider or a splitter or whatever it is, like there's going to be a big imbalance there. And other than that team or that particular player, I don't know who else would benefit from that. Well, the seams shifted wake example brings up another question for me that I thought of when you sent this to us, which is like, what are we defining as the moment of the patent, right? Because you have skills in baseball that we, you know, we come to appreciate when we can better quantify their impact from a value perspective, but that doesn't mean that people weren't using that skill prior to the quantification, right? So like, you know, people were framing pitches as long as they've been receiving them because that's part of Mm -hmm. being a catcher. We didn't know how valuable that was until we could put a number on it. It sounds like, you know, seam shifted wake is, I don't mean to say that it's unsophisticated, but that it is in some ways being able to put specific quantification and measurement to something that 
other, you know, that coaches had a sort of intuitive understanding of within the game for a long time. So, and and this is probably betraying my ignorance of like patent law, which is perfectly fine with me. <laughs> but like, what are what is the moment at which we say, oh, this is a this is a skill now versus something yeah. that people were just kind of feeling their way through, perhaps not as optimally as they they do once we can put some data around it. But what when are we? When are we doing the patent? When is patent? <laughs> yeah, and then do you get patent trolls who are just right? squatting on oh, certain ideas <laughs> and just come up with every conceivable baseball strategy and then no one can ever change the game in any way <laughs> ever? That would be bad too? Or yeah. is it about the implementation? You know, is it like when Brian Grosnick wrote about the idea of the opener for Beyond the Box Score in 2013 i want to say it was like can he patent that and then no one is allowed to use the opener unless he says so or is it about implementing the opener which is very different from blogging about it or you know bullpen games or or whatever it is i I guess you would end up with sort of a, a static version of baseball maybe which would probably be bad i mean maybe we wouldn't end up with the imbalance between batters and pitchers that we've had in recent years like you could just sort of free baseball at a certain point when you decide that it looks good and just stop the innovation at that point but in general i'm i'm in favor of the innovation and kind of the cat and mouse back and forth battle that we have historically seen plus imagine the chilling effect it would have on public research potentially right if if what you get when you come up with a cool new idea isn't just potentially a job with a team but like the patent to the thing right (laughs) like your your incentives to give those ideas away or subject them to to public sort of back and forth is going to be a lot more limited because who knows you might be sitting on a million dollar idea you don't know Mm -hmm. right yeah terrible we shouldn't do this (laughs) no Against removing players when they make an out, against patenting everything <laughs> baseball. Okay. We can close with a couple quick ones here, and these are also about strange scenarios in baseball games. Dan, another Patreon supporter, says, Suppose the following situation. It's a tie game in the bottom of the ninth or later, and the manager loses track of the runners on base. Thinking there are two on, he puts up four fingers and orders the intentional walk but it turns out that the bases were actually loaded. Does the umpire have a moral, legal, or ethical obligation to say something, confirm the request, or just do as he is told? Without doing any further investigation, it might seem as if the manager is trying to throw the game. It would seem like the umpire would have a duty to the integrity of the game to refuse the intentional walk. What say you? Meg, you have more rulebook reading experience than I'm sure I do and and John (laughs) does as well. I don't know whether this is specifically addressed, but there's always kind of the blanket like umpire has discretion to (laughs) make a decision to avoid something that endangers the integrity of the game or makes a mockery of the game. I don't know whether you think this would fall under that general category. I have not asked anyone, but in my (laughs) own reading of the the official rules and also there's like a separate umpire's handbook you know there's an operations manual there's all sorts of it's all sorts of stuff we can't just put it all in one place what would we do i would say yes like this is i think that especially with the gambling component present you you want to avoid not only the actual interference of of betting in the process but it's very important to avoid the appearance of any sort of interference so i think in that moment what the ump would probably say is 
hey, um, you know they're loaded though, right? And then I go, oh gosh, I was distracted. I had a branch in my eye or, you know, I was thinking about my shopping list and got to get milk on the way home or something. And then they would um, refuse the intentional walk because I think yeah. you're, you, you're, we're going to be very nervous about potential impropriety with the infusion of, of gambling into the space. So I think that they right. would say, yeah, we got to, we have to do what's best for the game, not just this one, but, um, you know, the capital G game. Mm-hmm. Oh, this that's interesting. I, my first thought was that I, the umpire should let that mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. <laughs> I think the manager should only double check to make sure that what the umpire heard is what the manager said. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this whole situation brings up a lot of inconsistencies. Like, I don't know what the exact situation is, but for example, when a team bats out of order. I was just going to bring yes, that there up. Are, yeah. 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 Or a runner ta- leaves the bag early on a, on a, on a tag up. Right. Or, yeah. So it, it's. Yeah, I don't know what the right answer yeah, is. But... In those cases, right, the umpire doesn't yeah. point it out, doesn't yeah. say, hey, you screwed up, unless the other team realizes yeah. it and points it out, right? Yeah. So and, the, right. the umpire lets you suffer from your mistakes in those yeah. scenarios, although those are not necessarily game-ending or, or game-breaking. I mean, I don't know how this could happen by accident. You'd really have to be zoning out and not just the manager, but the entire team, really. Yeah. I mean, in theory, the manager is probably going to be consulting with his coaches the bench coach you know it won't be unilateral and someone will say something like i don't know if it's like no backsies once you put up the fingers <laughs> to say that you're walking someone but i'd i'd imagine that like all your players and coaches would be like no wait wait and maybe the manager could change his mind quickly like i don't know what the rules are on that i would think that there would be some leeway allowed but yeah i would say again like who does it benefit like yeah maybe you should suffer the consequences of your actions if you're not paying attention to the game like if the fielder forgets how many outs there are and throws the ball into the stands or something well then the runners get to advance those bases right you don't get bailed out for those mistakes so i can see that perspective but then again who would want a game to end this way no one really it's not fun for fans like even if it is not trying to throw the game intentionally it's not a satisfying ending so even on those grounds i think i'd probably prefer that the umpire say something so from your reader question the other day about what's the worst way to end (laughs) we have a new answer now yeah exactly and we we also have seen intentional walks with the bases loaded in the past right yep Mm -hmm. not as a walk-off but uh it is arguably not a bad strategy so it could happen. Yeah. Uh, it's not uh, sabermetrically supported, and it certainly wouldn't be in this case. <laughs> I don't see any potential advantage to losing on purpose here. Unless, uh, I don't know, you're trying to end the game early to save your bullpen or something. Maybe this is the alternative to bringing in a position player pitcher. You just walk in a run intentionally, but no. But don't you just forfeit in that moment? Well, right. this is a way of forfeiting, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> but, but yeah. Maybe we should see what they do in cricket. Exactly, yes. Is there a cricket equivalent? Some guidance. Yeah. No manager would do this uh, voluntarily just because it would make him look so bad. I mean, the questions, the press conference, it would forever be a stain on the manager's record. So don't see it happening, but probably shouldn't be allowed anyway. Okay, last question. And we got variants of this question from two different Patreon supporters. So Paul says, why do players wear hats? 
what would happen if a player refused to wear a hat. And then Kevin, Patreon supporter along the same line, says, Watching a lot of the Women's College World Series this month, a few players don't wear hats in the field, such as Florida State's shortstop. The internet is ambiguous on the question of whether hats are mandatory or not, but they aren't specifically in the rulebook. And the arguments that it's part of the uniform and therefore has to be uniform aren't convincing to me. You're allowed to not wear sunglasses or long sleeves or high socks or a certain type of cleats. So why are hats different? The question is, what would be the response if someone started playing without a hat? Would they get treated as a show-off or attention seeker or for some reason? Or would people be cool with it and more follow their lead? Surely there wouldn't be a real impact on performance, at least in night games. Or if you strongly disagree with the premise above that it's okay, then what if a whole team decided to stop wearing hats, which seems clearly allowed by the rulebook? <laughs> I think this is a fantastic question. One of the things <laughs> I love is sports uniforms. So I feel like uh, this question is... Right up my alley. Um, I will say the first thing is softball is an awesome sport, but uh, but I, I do think softball and baseball are different sports. So I think we can have True. different answers and for this. And I usually am for individualness, but I kind of like the hats. <laughs> and one of our, <laughs> to my kid's chagrin, one of our common topics uh, of discussion over dinner is like things in sports uniforms that bother me. And uh, we'll. I could tell you some of them, but you can't unhear them. Uh, meaning like the Yankees jerseys. And the logo for the Yankees on their jersey, their helmets, and their hats—they're all different. Yeah, and and only yeah. until three years ago, the Detroit Tigers, the mm-hmm. D, um, mm-hmm. they were different, and they just made them consistent just a few years ago. And then baseball teams with an even number of letters in their team name, like Astros—the way they oriented across their chest—it's <laughs> it's uneven because you have six <laughs> letters and where the flap is on your shirt. So I've thought a lot about uniforms, but <laughs> for this question, I will say this. I would say only allow players not to have wear hats only if you have really great hair. Like you have to earn it, right? So I think Bryce Harper, Cindergard, uh, yeah. Culberson, yeah, Vladdy Jr., Guriel. Mm-hmm. One of the my favorite things every spring is two of my kids play hockey, and in Minnesota there's a big state tournament for their high school. All the high schools play in this tournament. And there's this video that comes out every year about the Minnesota State High School all-hair hockey team. And so they have terms like flow and lettuce and such. It's a great, Mm -hmm. funny video that you can watch on YouTube. And so uh, I think only the people with great hair could get away without hats. (laughs) Well, Cindergard brings up an interesting point on this question then, because... (laughs) The quality of his hair has ebbed. Right. So I have often wondered also, like sometimes, you know, they'll they'll take their caps off when they're in the dugout because they're like getting cozy to sit and wait for, um, you know, the, the rest of their dudes to bet. And you start to realize like how many of them are starting to bald. Oh, no. <laughs> which as an aside, nothing wrong with balding. And you might have a bald spot and an otherwise great head of hair. Like, it's very subjective. But I've often wondered, I'm like, is it accelerating the balding process to have to wear a hat at work every day? Like, does it make it work? I don't know how men's hair works, but it has it has made me wonder if it makes it worse. So maybe if, if uh, the expectation was at least when, you know, them not having the the bill of the cap wasn't helpful from a sun perspective. Like maybe if we let them not wear hats, there are more uh, good heads of hair. Hmm. <laughs> I've heard know. from friends whose doctors say that uh, the hats hurt. Oh, so, hey, we, huh. this would help them. 
Interesting. But my proposal yeah. is holes, though, because if you have someone like DeGrom who used to have great flow <laughs> and then he cut it. So what do we do? Force him to wear a hat? It's kind of tough. <laughs> but so. he was happy to cut his hair. Yeah. This is the, this is the thing. He was he was ready to be done with the flow. We got to, yeah. you know, we got to let these guys express themselves. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. This is tough for me because I'm not a hat wearer in civilian life. I don't have anything against hats, just never got in the habit of having things on my head. So I don't really wear hats either for protective purposes or for fashion purposes. I hardly wear anything for fashion purposes. I wear things for comfort. And for me, wearing something on my head is not the most comfortable state of being. But for a baseball player, like obviously there are practical reasons to wear hats. For one thing, protection from the sun, skin cancers, a great risk for baseball players so you want to cover up as much as possible and then maybe also it helps with keeping the sun out of your eyes and having to feel balls I mean doesn't apply necessarily in all cases maybe if you're in a dome or something but even if you're in a dome even if you're playing night games there are bright lights there are all sorts of distractions it probably helps to narrow your field of vision a little bit and if I were a baseball player I would probably want to wear a hat not just because it's the standard look but also because like you can kind of hide under your hat a little bit like you can just really screw it down on your head I used to when I was a fan and I would wear a a hat to games I used to kind of wear my cap like Andy Pettit who would just like really smush that hat down on his head and he would have the curved brim and you could just like kind of see his eyes just staring out from under the brim and I think that's a good look or if you make an error or something you can just kind of hide you know it's like uh, you can go incognito a little bit other than your name and number being on your back and so on so I see the benefits but technically speaking I think you could theoretically get away with this I mean it's true that hats are not necessarily specified in the rules as far as I know there is Something in the rule book about like no player whose uniform does not conform to that of his teammates shall be permitted to participate in a game, which again, as Kevin pointed out, kind of inconsistent, depending on what you think constitutes part of the uniform. And then also it seems like there's a possible loophole there in that if the entire team decides we're not wearing hats today, then you can conform to your teammates look by not wearing a hat. So it seems like if you read the fine print, you could get away with this if you wanted and there's the john olrude precedent right of wearing a a batting helmet in the field i guess he still has some kind of headwear on or catchers of course you know they're wearing masks but they may or may not be wearing a cap under it and if they are then it's facing backwards so there's some variety here and if you were to mount a strict legal challenge if we had the the Kurt Flood of caps come along and say, I refuse to wear a cap from now on, point to me in the rules where I have to do this, then maybe you could get away with it. But uh, you'd probably be ostracized and you'd face all sorts of slings and arrows and it would be tough. And maybe you could patent your capless look and then only you would be the, <laughs> the player who's allowed to go hatless. And one open unresolved issue with this would be if your team's down by four runs and you mount a rally, what do you do? Right. right. So I think for the too. sake of the team, the uh, I find I, f- I find it interesting that the hat's not part of the uh, the rule book, the uniform. Yeah. Like recently, there's a lot of inconsistency with socks and players yep. wearing different socks and colored belts and stuff. And I did not know that about the hat. Yeah. I'm 
imagine though that if you're a ball player and you finally make the big leagues and you like put on the uniform, like being able to have the complete look that ties you to the tradition of that team's uniform, like that's probably a special moment for you, right? Like I doubt that there are very many guys who are like, I hate these caps. Plus they've been wearing ball caps their whole lives. Like they've been wearing ball caps since they were in Little League. So they might feel incomplete. Like you kind of feel naked in public Mm -hmm. without the cap on. But yeah, I wonder if there are any secret, like I hate these stupid hats. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, it gives you hat hair, gives you smelly hair. It's all matted down. And yes, if you do have a, a glorious mane, then you have to hide it, you know, hide your light under a baseball cap. No one wants to do that. So could you imagine Dustin May coming out in a, without a hat on a hot, humid day, that would that would be quite the sight. <laughs> yes, right. Dustin May and I have the same hair, it's just different colors. So yes, I can very much imagine what that would look yeah. like. I mean, baseball caps look good, generally, on yeah. baseball players, at least. It's because we expect them to be wearing them, I guess. But also, some baseball players just look better just because of their head shape or where their eyes are or whatever. You know, you see some player without a hat and you're like, oh, wait, that's what he looks like. I don't even <laughs> recognize him. Chris Bryant, that's what you were like under there that whole time. I didn't even realize. So I think it can be beneficial from an appearance perspective, too. And it's just tradition. It marks you as part of the team. It's classic. It's a baseball cap. That's what it's called. It's right in the name. I think if we're going to fight this fight that we start with Yankees and facial hair, like this is, <laughs> yeah. the caps are not the top priority. No. All right. John, thank you very much for your support on Patreon and for your help here today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Please say hello to your kids for us. And if you want to plug anything before we let you go or remind anyone of any plugs you made earlier, please do. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me on. This has been quite a joy. I would love to, uh, if you want to visit MoonlightGramSociety.com, if you know of players that have played just one or very few minor league games, we'd love to connect with them and just share stories and support your all girls baseball teams like baseball for all. It's a fantastic organization. Um, Support them when you can. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, our pleasure. And as a teaser for next time, when we will start our discussion of Stove League, I know that you are, what, mid-watch right now? What would you say to anyone who's still on the fence out there? Are you enjoying it? Would you recommend it? Uh, I heard it was a Korean drama, and I'd say, boy, it's quite dramatic. uh, (laughs) My my parents moved from South Korea to Philadelphia right before Mm -hmm. I was born, and uh, it's besides... Getting, I feel like this show was made for me. It has the baseball, it has the drama. There's a lot of really neat views of Korean culture. So, mm-hmm. so you can pitch this as this is a cultural experience. Yes. All right. <laughs> well, there you go. You heard it here from John. Everyone watch. Okay. John, thanks very much. Thank you very much. All right, before we go, you may have noticed that I did not supply a stat blast today, and that was because I am outsourcing today's stat blast to yet another Patreon supporter, Michael Mountain.
Some of you may remember back in 2018, we had Michael on multiple times to preview and review his baseball road trip, which was 30 ballparks. He went to all the MLB parks in a span of 36 days, and we talked to him about how he planned that trip and how it went. And last week, there was a Reddit thread by someone who pointed out that after the minor league contraction and with all stadiums allowing fans again, it is now theoretically possible to attend a game at every major and minor league park in 2022. And Michael, given his baseball road trip experience, took this as a challenge and wanted to come up with the most efficient itinerary. And now that he has done that work, we wanted to have him on to explain his results. So, Michael, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Ben. So I think I probably asked you a few years ago to explain your method for figuring out the optimal route here. But as a refresher, how did you go about figuring out the order of parks and games here? Sure. So the the method for this trip was obviously in large part the same as my previous major league only excursion. Yes. There's a few things that you have to treat a little bit differently, just given the size of the problem you're working with. But the basic strategy um, is essentially to start by trying to figure out the minimum number of days that you need to visit all the parks. Mm-hmm. And then once you've identified that time window, uh, you can then start to look for optimizing the actual uh, travel distance and how long you're on the road. I see. So what are the constraints you're working with here? How many parks are we talking about? And I guess, like, what's the maximum amount of time that you are able to do this, assuming you can just take the summer off to be a traveling baseball watcher? Right. So the the uh, major league season in 2022 is 186 days long. Okay. Um, obviously, the minor league seasons are slightly shorter than that, with most teams starting sort of mid-April and wrapping up in the first couple weeks of September, depending on the level. There's 149 ballparks. Uh, there's 150 teams, but the uh, A-ball uh, Jupiter Hammerheads and Palm Beach Cardinals share the same uh, stadium down at one of the spring training facilities in Florida. So I decided, and the the um, the Reddit post that that I took inspiration from um, also made the determination that uh, it's more this is more about visiting the sites than seeing all of the teams. Uh-huh. Uh, so I elected not to try to get both of those teams in the same park at home. Yeah, that would be pretty difficult. So what did you come up with here? How long is this going to take? Well, in in one sense, I succeeded beyond my wildest hopes and dreams. And in another sense, uh, I don't think I quite lived up to the billing that you presented me with because I, unlike my major league trip, I cannot guarantee that this one is optimal. Uh, Again, just based on the size of the problem. Just too many permutations. (laughs) Exactly. Instead of the 2,400 or so major league games, you're talking about about 10,000 games uh, in Mm -hmm. the total schedule. And there's about 100,000 different legs of the trip, possible legs, you know, traveling between one game and another. So yeah. the the search space is just uh, too large to really uh, exhaustively search completely. But I was not expecting, frankly, to find a trip that involved no travel days. So this is actually, other than the All-Star break, which you can't avoid because you need yeah. more than half the season to do this. So you have like three days off in the middle. But other than that, every day that there's a game on the schedule, you're seeing a game. And so you're able to do it in 153 days. And I found quite a number of possible solutions that meet that time frame. Again, not be able to guarantee which one of them is the most optimal, but the best one that I've found is about just under 
33,000 miles of driving, which compared to uh, my previous uh, MLB trip, that's about double the mileage. But again, you're seeing five times as many games. So the return on investment uh, is is pretty substantial. <laughs> right. What is the total mileage? So it's 32,983 miles approximately uh, based uh-huh. on Google Maps. Okay. I should note that uh, this was intended as a driving itinerary and there are some constraints to, sort of to to try and avoid uh, situations where you're you're asking an impossible task uh, of a driver or a drive team. So the intention is that you don't have to leave before about nine o'clock in the morning to get to your next site um, and that you're not having to drive late into the evening as well. So do you know what the longest leg is in terms of travel time or distance? Yeah. So based on those constraints, it's it's hard to uh, ask for more than about 10 hours of driving in a day, which, yeah. uh, you know, that constraint I set up sort of based on my own comfort level and knowing what I've been able to do in the past, both on baseball road trips and other long haul driving. So the worst individual leg is unsurprisingly getting out to the West Coast, uh, mm-hmm. just the, the, the lower density of teams uh, as you move further West until you get to California uh, just makes that a very tricky thing to do effectively and especially because you're not you're trying not to take any days off i did make some assumptions about uh, game time because while some major league teams have already uh, announced game times for their 2022 schedule uh, almost none of the minor league teams have on the on the plus side with the restructuring of the minor leagues and uh, schedule simplification, basically every minor league schedule is a six-day homestand, Tuesday through Sunday, followed by a Monday off. Mm -hmm. So I just assumed that all of those were evening games except for the Sunday, which would be an afternoon. And that may not be exactly correct, but hopefully there's only a handful of legs that would actually depend on that being 100% accurate in order to make them. I didn't prepare you for this question, but do you know which team is most distant from all other teams? That is a good question. In the major league schedule, I know in the major league only problem, I know that it's Seattle. Uh-huh. I'm not yeah. certain for this. It might be Colorado, which uh, is interesting because uh, Colorado actually ends up being the last stadium visited on this itinerary, uh, which again, that's helpful because you only have to get to it once and you don't have to leave to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So it might be Colorado, but I'm not certain. Could anything induce you to make this trip? Uh <laughs> No. <laughs> no, I I do have some thoughts about uh, future baseball travel, but I have to say after the 2018 excursion, I think the road trip concept, uh, I've gotten my fill of that. The latest uh, thing that I might actually possibly do in real life as opposed to just a uh, exercise in trip planning is potentially next time the league expands to look at some sort of schedule that uh, includes flights and attempts to visit all visit all the stadiums as quickly as possible um, with the thought that if there's more teams uh, than there previously were, you could make a case that that should count for some sort of a new record of some sort. Yes. So where do you start and where do you end? I guess there are multiple ways you could do it, but... Sure. So for this for this solution, uh, you start in Atlanta. Uh, I mentioned you end in Colorado, and the the path is it sort of roughly starts out with a um, a figure eight loop. 
So you sort of go up towards the northeast, um, New York, Boston, Philly area. Then you swing out west towards the Great Lakes, upper Midwest, head down towards Florida and get some of those southeast stadiums. You can spend a week just driving around Florida, seeing all the teams that are down there. Then heading uh, west over to Texas uh, to complete the bottom side of the figure eight uh, before heading back through Kansas City and St. Louis uh, to get the other northeast stadiums uh, like Pittsburgh and Toronto that you weren't able to hit uh, on the first time. Again, the you know the 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 fact that you're trying to see an entire league basically when only half of them are going to be at home at a certain time mostly means that you have to sort of go through each area twice. Not completely, but that actually uh, tends to be a little bit more optimal than you might think just because it's too hard to get all of the games to line up otherwise. Yeah. If you wait long enough, Rob Manfred might keep contracting the minor leagues to the point that this will get a lot easier to do. So. Yeah. The the more he cuts, uh, the closer to optimal I can get. And I, I don't want you to think that I'm encouraged uh, by no. that prospect. But uh, no. All right. Well, will you post your itinerary or itineraries? Can I link to them somewhere on the the show page somehow or uh, make them viewable to people in case anyone does want to plan it? I'm just putting it out there. If you have a lot of free time and a lot of mileage on your car and you really love baseball, you are guaranteed a guest appearance on Effectively Wild at the end of this odyssey. I don't think that that is sufficient incentive to make this trip, but I'm just saying if you do, you are welcome to come on as Michael did and I believe during your trip we also met up at a diner for lunch so if you want to do this uh, I will have an omelet with you at a, a diner of my choice and then have you on the podcast but you have to visit uh, roughly 150 ballparks so <laughs> I'm not sure that's worth the price of entry yeah and if you're able to beat my schedule uh, I will give you a, a prize of inestimable value <laughs> okay all right. Well, people can check this out themselves. Anything you want to plug while you're here, Michael, other than your itineraries? Support Effectively Wild on Patreon. Uh, and you can also follow my novelty Effectively Wild Twitter account at oh, yeah. no, no Context EW Pod. Yes. I, I tweet random quotes from a random Effectively Wild episode about uh, once every weekday. I have noticed. I've wondered how you do that, whether as you listen, you just jot down strange phrases and you just work them into a rotation because sometimes these will go back years. So I don't know whether you're going back and listening to old episodes or you remembered these things or how, how does this work? Uh, yes, I have a backlog of episodes left to go back and re-listen to. Uh, and But yes, I'm just uh, taking quotes as I as I come back across them. So wonderful yes sometimes they are somewhat disturbing out of context but that is the point of the account <laughs> absolutely all right well thank you for your computations good to talk to you again michael thanks ben take care all right that will do it for today thanks to john and to michael and to all of our other patreon supporters you can read up on what's known as the traveling salesman problem if you want to learn more about why michael's task is so complex However, I am looking at and linking to his itinerary, and apparently there are four teams that the traveler would encounter four times on this trip as either the visiting team or the home team, the Altoona Curve, the Quad Cities River Bandits, the Washington Nationals, and the Seattle Mariners, which might be a good thing in 2022. Again, we would encourage you to start watching Stove League. We'll still follow our regular programming as we do our periodic Stove League discussions over the next few weeks. 
So there will be something for everyone, but Stove League is for everyone as well. Again, check it out on Viki, the streaming service, if you can. And thanks to everyone who has emailed or commented or tweeted us the Atlanta Braves Instagram post from this week. A Ronald Acuna Jr. quote, If I was giving 500% before, I'm about to start giving 1,000%. This is, of course, a callback to a series of Effectively Wild episodes years ago during the Jeff Sullivan era where we chronicled the many examples of players saying that they gave some percent well above 100 I forget exactly how high we were able to document examples of. I don't think 1,000% was the leader in the clubhouse, but it's been a while. Anyway, I enjoy how once we talk about something repeatedly unaffectedly wild, it doesn't matter if years go by. Our listeners have long memories, and they will call our attention to anything relevant. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners, like John and like Michael, have pledged some monthly or yearly amount to support the podcast and help us keep it ad-free and get themselves access to some perks, including potentially joining us on an email episode or getting access to our Patreon-exclusive AMA episodes or getting access to the patron-only Discord group, which is where I connected with Michael about this podcast appearance. Today's Patreon thank yous go to Corey Kelso, Ryan Morgan, Grayson Wolf, Elizabeth Baldwin, and Yo-Yo. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. There's an Effectively Wild subreddit called Effectively Wild. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Meg via email at podcast.thangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode this week. Talk to you soon. So everyone cares Cause the hat that he wears Is on the runway And I heard them say